Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with L.E. Modisett Jr., author of Quantum Shadows, uh, to be published by Tor Books, July 21st, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. I'm glad to be here. So first, with all the, as a writer, I'm sure you have, you know, a ton of ideas bubbling. Um, how did the idea for this particular book rise above the rest? Actually, this has been a back burner book of mine that I've been thinking about, or was thinking about for years before it was written. It actually took me about five years to write it. Mm-hmm. In between the, shall we say, the fantasies that, I'm known for more than this sort of thing. I've always had a fascination with the questions of belief and ethics and their interrelationships. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, Quantum Shadows is an exploration of that interrelationship set in the far future in a science fantasy setting of sorts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be hard science fiction. It might be a little bit of fantasy. But it's basically an exploration of belief structures and ethics. Okay. Was there, so was there something that prompted um, the time for this to be written? Did you see anything in current events or it just felt I, like it was? <laughs> I think it was more, almost, I won't say the culmination, but I spent 20 years working in national politics mm-hmm. uh, before I became a full time writer. And I think that had a lot to do with it. And also, call it the state of the world, where we're seeing a rise in what I would call the true believer culture, mm-hmm. both in politics and in religion. You see the rise of fundamentalist groups of all sorts who are fanatical about their beliefs, beliefs that often have no basis, factual basis anywhere, but they're still held deeply. And you find people right now adhering more, those who are believers, adhering more to what I would call very deeply held beliefs that may not even have much factual basis. Mm-hmm. Where, at least in the United States, you see the membership in what one would call mainstream religion declining. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an interesting and, I frankly think, disturbing trend. Mm-hmm. That certainly fed into it. So let's talk about the um, the book itself, um, you know, without revealing too many details. Um, tell me about the setting, the protagonist, um, the conflict. Well, the protagonist is Corvin, and you might think of him as, well, I don't want to be a spoiler, but just say a personified raven. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subtitle of the book is 45 Ways of Looking at a Raven. Hmm. And the reason for that is every chapter is introduced by a couplet or a quatrain about a raven, which bears on the chapter that follows. Corvin's known as the raven in this future world. Mm-hmm. And one other thing, the original title of the book was a little bit longer. It was Quantum Shadows of Heaven, and the world on which it takes place is named Heaven. Mm-hmm. So that gives you some idea of the setting. In this particular world, There are countries, call it hegemonies. Mm -hmm. Each one represents a given faith. Now, these are not necessarily the faiths we have today, Mm -hmm. 
some are, some aren't. But they control a certain amount of territory on the world of heaven. There are also lesser beliefs, which have villages or towns of belief. And a manifestation of power occurs, which suggests that one of the hegemons wants to take over all the others. But the world's been set up by those who built it, literally from scratch, thousands of years before, so that there is a separation of power and religion. Mm-hmm. And basically, the story is about Corbin's efforts to track down what power is behind this manifestation, because if that power is, is extended, it's a, po- it's a possibility that it will literally cause the total destruction of heaven. Mm-hmm. So that's the basic outline without revealing spoilers. <laughs> Okay. Now, what you uh, described um, makes me wonder, just a question here, again, not to get any spoilers revealed, but if if the system in place during the time of the novel was set up thousands of years ago, is there any exploration or is there any um, discussion of the people in the present day sort of are functioning from faith, you know, of what was created and faith and that that's the way it should be, or, you know... Uh, <laughs> every believing group, the core of that, or each hegemony, believes that its belief is supreme. Hmm. And, in essence, that's why the lands were set up the way they are. They're separated often by rivers, and one of the underlying, should we say, social structures is, mm-hmm. there are no bridges. There are only ferries. And the world is girded, if you will, by satellites which monitor this. Hmm. And uh, anybody who tries to build a bridge finds it destroyed. Huh. Um, there's no problem with ferries, but it was designed to keep a certain amount of isolation. There's plenty of travel. Hmm. It's, just, it's very difficult to move large amounts of power. Hmm. And also, aircraft are not allowed. Hmm. This, uh, this, is, this sounds very fascinating, and I want to ask, and maybe... This would inadvertently reveal details, but the science fiction part of it, I can guess what's there, but is there anything you can reveal as far as the science fiction part of the book? Pretty much everything, almost everything, is an extension of current culture. <laughs> I am assuming in this structure that we finally managed to crack the question of fusion power. They they call it the extension of various of various aspects of current technology. It is an extension. Okay. It would be a recognizable society to somebody today, mm-hmm. but in terms of, shall we say, personal comfort, health, and technology, you'd rather live in heaven than where we are now. Mm, okay. Would you say, does the setting, does it have a, so it sounds like it has a contemporary day feel to it, the aesthetics, or, you know, part, some part of me wondered if it had a medieval feel. Uh, no, no, it's very much, call it a future contemporary feel. Okay. And so, I guess the raven part of it is what makes me, you know, ravens are often used in, uh, you know, medieval kind of writing. Uh, it has that feel. That's why I wonder. No, Corbin is a very advanced, call it raven, technologically adept persona. Mm-hmm. And there's a great reliance on solar power. Okay. All right. Is it, uh, so it's not supposed to be Earth, it's just... No, it's not Earth. Okay. I mean, there's no doubt about this. 
Okay. This is the last of multiple worlds that human beings have conquered. Hmm. And basically the reason it was set up the way it was is all too many times in the past, once humans set up a world, they ended up destroying it. Hmm. Okay. And part of Corbin's role is to make sure they don't do it again. Ah, I see. Does it? Does the book connect with in any small way to any of your previous writings, any other worlds or realities you've set up? Not really. Okay. Okay. I mean, authors being authors, we do tend to, to have certain small tropes or ticks that might repeat, might repeat themselves. Mm-hmm. And the reader might say, well, isn't that sort of like what happened in X or Y? Well, there are probably a couple of those little things there. Mm-hmm. But when you're, when you're projecting into the future, all of us have got certain aspects or technologies with which we're more familiar. Mm-hmm. And those appear occasionally in our books, but that doesn't, I'm not, I certainly didn't make any deliberate references to any previous books. Okay. Was there any sort of research you had to do for this book? Um, I know. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, the research was actually mostly on religious systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always been fascinated with religion, even before I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've read the Bible, I've read the Koran, I've done a fair amount of reading on various Eastern religious systems, and I had to do a bit more. Mm-hmm. Now, you said it does reflect. So some of the so there are ten major religions in the book. I guess you you said previously that some do mimic what we have yeah. here, but some you sort some, of created. Some some more, some less, some are fusions. Mm-hmm. And basically, the fa- the ten major hegemonies are referred to as the Decalibra, mm-hmm. which is actually a play, if you will, on the ten books. If you look at it from Linguistically, mm-hmm. that literally mean that literally take off. Decalibre literally would mean a slightly twisted version of French saying ten books, <laughs> mm. and this ties into, a, shall we say, a Western cultural thing because a lot of religions are called peoples of the books. I'm speaking with L. E. Modisette Jr., author of Quantum Shadows. If you'd like more information on his work, please visit lemodisettejr.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So the reason, so, okay, so that, my question was going to, my next question was going to be, you know, why not just have, you know, three, three in competition, you know, why 10, you know, does each one have a particular characteristic that's important for the conflicts in this book? Yes, but the reason why there's 10 is, if you take a look at our world today, I mean, 10 is an arbitrary arbitrary number, but mm-hmm. we tend to operate as humans mostly on a 10-base system. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing is, I probably haven't done some religions justice, but 
there are far more than ten in our world, and I couldn't believe that there would only be three or four, particularly given humanity's proclivity to split off. You start with Catholicism, for example, just as a Christianity thing. How many different versions of Christianity are there after 2,000 years? Mm-hmm. You've got, I think, four major branches of Judaism. I may be wrong on that one because I looked up it exactly, but you've got conservative, reformed, traditional, and you've got two major branches of Islam. It didn't strike me that two or three or five was exactly even reasonably realistic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's that's also why there are lots of villages and towns of belief, right? Who don't who don't have enough supporters to say to become a hegemony. Okay, I see. I follow. Um, what are some of the um, the works in sci-fi and fantasy that have inspired you over time? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I could pin it down that well. I started writing professionally forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a good fifteen years before that, from the time I was probably thirteen, I read pretty much everything in the field. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that was back when you could. But I was reading three, four hundred books a year for in the early years. So it, it's really difficult for me to, I'm sure that a lot of them influenced me. I mean, you can't help but not be at least slightly influenced by Heinlein or Alfred Bester, uh, later on Gordy Dixon, Sherry Tepper, Ursula Le Guin. I mean, some of those people was influenced even though I was writing professionally at that time. I mean, I don't think influence ever stops. Right. I mean, I think one of the one of the books on the theological side that I always was impressed by, and it's not considered one of his greater works, but it's Michael Michael Moorcock's uh, "The Warhound and the World's Pain," mm-hmm. which I think is probably one of the finest Grail novels ever written. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so, I don't know. I don't know if that quite answers your question. I, I'm. It does. A, I've read so many people in the field. It would be an injustice, and I've probably already done an injustice to people who've influenced me, and I haven't thought of them in those terms. What about any kind of books or media outside of sci-fi and fantasy? Um, well, actually, yeah, I actually started out as a poet, and I'd uh, probably say one of the bigger influences on me was William Butler Yeats. Uh, um, because he, yes, he's a poet, and he was a great poet, but beneath all of that poetry, there's a certain, I would call it, religious sensibility of sorts, mm-hmm. and a lot of questioning. Sort of looking for the, um, the mysterious or invisible behind the things that well, you see? Well, also, I mean, in a way, poetry is also a religion, and... I think that was one of the things that I tried to do by introducing each chapter with what I would call a traditional couplet or quatrain. Mm-hmm. They're all rhymed and metered. I'm not the world's biggest fan of modern poetry. Mm-hmm. I think poetry loses something when you take away the meter and the rhyme. Mm-hmm. Now, originally, that's one of the reasons why it had it, because before the printing press, that had to be carried by memory. Mm-hmm. And it's strongly, extremely difficult to remember poetry that doesn't have cadence and rhyme. Mm-hmm. 
you also lose some of the power. Right. Yeah. Some of the rhythmic musical feel of it. Yeah. And I mean, I think taking it around in a little bit of a circle, I'm not a great fan of rap, but I certainly see why it evolved. Mm-hmm. Because that part of our culture has been really, of all culture, well, Western cultures has been really minimized over the last century or so. Mm-hmm. And rap fills that particular void. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, but I, I don't want to say when you were a poet, because as a writer, you still utilize poetry in your writing. Um, uh, yeah, I have basically, there are a couple of books in the Reckless Cycle mm-hmm. that are literally linked together by a book of poetry, which which is given to the main character at the beginning of the first book. Mm-hmm. And all of that, of course, is my, my verse, not anybody else's. Mm-hmm. So when you write just straight poetry, like in the past and... and and onwards, what uh, are there any any subject matter that you focused on? Any themes that you preferred? Not particularly. Mm-hmm. I think I've probably written poetry about everything. Mm-hmm. Anything that captures your imagination? Well, anything that one feels strongly about. Mm-hmm. Would you say you've covered a wide range of emotions within your poetry? I hope I've covered a wide range of emotions in both my poetry and my writing. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say that, I mean both from, like, you know, despair and anger all the way to joy and happiness. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Okay. If the book had a soundtrack, what what would it sound like? <laughs> I think it would range from Debussy to Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Mm-hmm. It has sort of a classical feel. Well, Beethoven's more almost a romantic, and W.C. I'd say would I'd say probably more of a romantic feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of the music. Right. Right. Okay. That's that's an interesting um, combination. It feels almost like a uh, you know, it's not dystopian. It feels like a sort of a utopian society that is experiencing these sort of structural faults. I would say it's more a an attempted, shall we say, a compromise between utopia and reality based on faith. Hmm. Do you have characters, if this gets into spoiler territory, you know, just tell me, but are there characters who reject sort of the premise of the planet's existence, you know, based on religion? Um, I wouldn't say there are very many, although there is one hegemony, which is literally the skeptics. Mm. And they are skeptical of pretty much everything. Hmm, okay. And by the way, that's where Corbin's from. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. There are more questions I want to ask about this world, but, but I think the, the suggestion would be just read the book <laughs> to see what you say <laughs> about... Uh, well, uh, <laughs> well, the early people who've read it seem to fall into two categories. Mm-hmm. They're either highly disappointed or they think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not going to be a book for everybody. Mm-hmm. I think those who like it are going to like it a whole lot, and I think those who don't like it are not going to like it very much at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, inspire passion or, uh, <laughs> or I don't know what the other word would be, uh, indifference. <laughs> Or well, sometimes it's repugnance. <laughs> repugnance. That's yes. That's the better word. The word I was looking for. 
when you write, is there anything out of the ordinary you do to, you know, when you write drafts um, or when you complete the work, is there anything special you think you do um, to get it done? <laughs> I think all writers think there's something they do that's special. Uh-huh. But I honestly can't say that I do anything special except that, well, I'll put it in another way. People often ask me, is writing fun? Hell no. <laughs> um, writing sometimes agonizing, but there's an enormous, at least for me, feeling of satisfaction when I think I've done something well. Mm-hmm. And the greatest moment of that satisfaction is when I have finished the draft, the last finest finished draft. That's when I feel the best about it. I mean, yes, I want the books. Yes, I want the books to sell, but my personal satisfaction is is the greatest when I finish something, just finish something. Mm-hmm. How has your approach to writing changed over time? You know, maybe when you first had what you consider your 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 big success at the start, and then to this point. Well, one, I never had big success at the start. Hmm. Um, I started writing short stories. 1972. It took me a year to get one published, and I published six more over the next six years, even though I wrote close to a hundred. Mm-hmm. I had moderate success with novels for the next ten years, and it wasn't until The Magic Recluse was published, not quite twenty years after my first story, mm-hmm. that I started to get recognition and real success. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is almost 20 years ago, no, almost 30 years ago. Um, my writing style, to answer your question, hasn't changed that much, except one, it's more polished, obviously. Mm-hmm. And two, when I started out, I tended to write more in what I would call mosaic style. I'd write a chunk of something and then write a chunk of something else that might be further behind or in front of what I was writing. And this is the time before computers were able to do this. I literally would put the pieces in an accordion folder and fill them in. Computers, when we got the 286 processor, had enough storage space so I could do that electronically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I moved from typewriter to electronics at that point. Along the way, I do less writing mosaic style. I still do some of it. But I think I have a better grasp of what I'm doing in terms of the overall sweep of the story than Mm -hmm. I did when I started. That's probably the biggest change. Okay. So you mentioned work you've done before you became a professional writer. Is there any other work before writing or maybe work you did as a writer, non-writing work, that's influenced how or what you write? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I had writing components to all the jobs I had. Even when I was a Navy pilot, they made me the administrative officer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I worked as an economist. Mm-hmm. And, um, that didn't work out too well, but I, I wrote reports for that. Mm-hmm. I worked in politics, and I wrote speeches, rationales for, for legislation. Um, later on, I wrote testimony when I was at EPA, I wrote testimony for the administrator and others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked in the consulting field. The best single writing lesson I got in was in, in the uh, 
consulting field, mm-hmm. we tended to write something which we call policy papers, a very stylized form of trying to get information across to government or clients. And basically, it was literally a three-teach thing with two bullet points, no more than two bullet points to state the problem, a series of bullet points to recommend what should be done, and a concluding set of bullet points. Mm-hmm. And I turned one end to my boss, and he looked at me and he says, where the hell does this say our, our client's getting screwed? I said, well, it's right there. And he looked at me and he said, you wrote around it. Yeah. And I'm going to quote what he said exactly. Okay. And you can edit it if necessary. <laughs> he said, if it doesn't the fuck say it, it doesn't the fuck say it. <laughs> okay. I get it. And that, in a lot of ways, was one of the best writing lessons I ever got. Mm-hmm. Which was, stop trying to write around it. Yeah. Just, yeah, just tell the reader directly. Um, and it, it, I mean, there are many ways to get to things. There are some things that you really do want to do directly. Mm-hmm. But you should be doing that by design, not because you can't figure out how to do it the other way. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder how that advice can be, can it be applied to poetry? Because poetry seems to be sort of, at times, uh, indirect. It is and it isn't. But poetry's directness, I think, really is in, it's an emotional appeal. Mm-hmm. And it's the indirect use of words to evoke a direct emotion. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. As a novelist, you can do the same thing. There are times when you do want to write it indirectly so that people get the feel for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think as you get, become more experienced, you know how and when to do it. Mm-hmm. And what, what, sort, what sort of book is it? I mean, if you're going to write a thriller, it's all about the action. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be about the action. That's why I don't write thrillers. Mm-hmm. I write, the best I can do is what you might call our semi-thrillers. Mm-hmm. Because a tremendous component of what I write is the internal tension and tensions on the character. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why very few of my books will ever become, if ever, movies. Well, these don't show internal tension very well. Right. And I think that's one of the greatest strengths of novels. They can and they do. Mm-hmm. And I think people tend to forget that often good novels don't make good movies. Mm-hmm. Sometimes awful novels make really good movies. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's definitely... I can't disagree there. So when you, as you were writing Quantum Shadows, um, was there much you had to take out? As you were editing? Not really. But I think part of that was simply it took so many years to do it, and I didn't force it. And I was also fairly focused on that. I mean, that's not to say the case always the case. Mm -hmm. A novel I turned in six months ago, by the time I was through with it, it, between the editor and me, we took out almost 60,000 words. Mm. It's just that this particular book, that wasn't the problem. I actually remembered a question I wanted to ask, which was, uh, what did you fly? I was a helicopter search and rescue pilot. Hmm. Navy. Okay. So, flying off ships, on yes. and off ships. I actually flew off both ships, and then I was also stationed for a little while at the Pacific Missile Range facility in Kauai. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of things. We'd ferry people up to radar stations on the top of the cliffs, would recover missiles that they splashed into the ocean. 
occasionally pick pilots out of very occasionally pick pilots out of the ocean mm-hmm. as someone who's you know has the is a poet and a writer did you join the navy to explore sort of the opposite kind of thing or what was the motivation there <laughs> actually it was stupidity <laughs> okay I joined the Navy during the Vietnam era Mm -hmm. because, very frankly, I didn't want to be a grunt. Mm -hmm. I was in great physical condition. At the time I joined, I was single, and I thought, there is no way in God's green earth I'm not going to be drafted. Mm -hmm. So I joined the Navy in a program that doesn't exist anymore called Reserve Officer Candidate, where you went to OCS summer after your sophomore year or summer after your junior year. Mm-hmm. And then you got a commission if you stayed in school. Now, the downside of the program was if you flunked out of college, you immediately went on three years active duty hmm. as an enlisted man. Right. But I did graduate. And when I got graduated, when I got out of school, I was commissioned and I was assigned to amphibious assault boats. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. They were bouncing up and down all over the place, and I won't go into some of the strange things that happened. I got through about a half a tour, mm-hmm. and I was with a special boat detachment in Vietnam, and I just got tired of it. So I volunteered for flight training. I thought that'd be much neater, mm. which, of course, was one of the stupidest things from a <laughs> rational point of view I could have done. Mm-hmm. We were in the middle of the war. I was in the Navy in a billet that was relatively safe. Yes, I occasionally had to ferry Marines into the beach, mm-hmm. but in any of those cases, I didn't get shot at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going into the most dangerous branch of the Navy. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I survived it, but it wasn't one of the brighter moves I ever made from a, from a self-preservation point of view. <laughs> wow, wow. So no one warned you beforehand? No, well, all right, I'll tell you an interesting story that goes with it. Sure. I have a son. He went to the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. And his senior year, they did service selection. And I wanted to know what he was going to do. And I sort of said, you want to be in the, you know, want to go to the air arm or what have you. Uh, I know he didn't really want to go straight surface. And he called me up and he said, well, I made my choice. And I said, well, what'd you do? And his answer wasn't straight toward me. He said, Dad, you are crazy. I've seen the mortality figures. <laughs> and and uh, they told him that they gave the cadets the, the Annapolis those figures, but I never saw them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he opted for the nuclear Navy and did two tours. <laughs> oh, okay. So I think that's a little safer. Oh, yeah. Well, he made the point. Since World War II, the Navy's only lost one submarine. The numbers on how many pilots and aircraft they've lost are classified. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, at least you raised a smart son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with L.E. Modisett, Jr., author of Quantum Shadows. If you'd like more information on his work, please visit lemodisettjr.com. If you like this podcast so far, Please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists 
at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. Wow. So how long did you stay in the Navy? Uh, six years. Six years. Yeah. Not quite six years. Mm-hmm. And you didn't want to do any flying after that? Actually, I had a choice to go on with it. And I realized something. I was possibly the worst pilot who ever got his wings. <laughs> and the Navy was smart enough to send me to the Pacific Missile Range to begin with, mm-hmm. where I was mentored by a senior pilot who had been voted the best instructor at the training command when he'd done that tour. Mm-hmm. Best pilot I ever knew. Incredible. And he taught me to become a competent pilot, maybe even a little better than that. Mm-hmm. But at the end of my tour, or when we were getting close to it, I realized, one, I'm not a great pilot. I don't love it enough. And not being a great pilot and not loving it enough is a sure recipe for a long-term disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just, since I was a, re- a reservist on active duty, when my obligation was up, I said, no, I'm not going to re-up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you recall that instructor's name? Yeah, I do. His name was, he was Lieutenant Commander Gail Edgar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. I still think about him. Oh, yeah? He was that good an instructor? That good an instructor and that good a person. Oh, okay. I guess he stayed in the Navy for a while, or do you know? Yeah, he stayed in. He did a career. I don't know when exactly he retired. Mm-hmm. But, uh, That's good. I mean, I'm sure he helped uh, He helped protect your life. Oh, yeah. Hmm. That's good. Kind of a whimsical question. Um, when you were younger, was there any power, technology, or fictional setting that uh, you wanted or you, or you yearned to be a part of? I wanted to be a space pilot. <laughs> oh, yeah? Which may have led to why I chose to be a, a Navy pilot. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's what I fantasized about. I mean, I read science fiction from the time I was probably 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Any particular uh, fictional space pilots that uh, that you like the most? No. Just any of them? Probably, well... I've written about two of them, mm-hmm. Darren Alwyn and uh, Trist- no, yeah, Tristan DeSalle. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're probably my favorite ones. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. I guess they're still, I mean, they're sending people up into space. I mean, any of us, I guess, have, have the opportunity maybe in the near future to, to maybe not be a pilot, but to be a passenger up into space. Uh, at this point, I don't really have any desire to do that. I'm- oh, really? I, I think I think it's fascinating. I'm what I'm very much in favor of, it. Mm-hmm. but there are a lot of problems and limitations that we got to work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, still some work to be done. Did so? You mentioned how you know the book took a few years. Were Were there any other difficulties in uh, finishing the book or getting it published? No, not really. I mean, my editor liked it a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, Torres certainly supported it. Okay. Uh, we'll just have to see how it how it goes. Yeah. The um the 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 couplets you wrote for each chapter. Did you uh did you have to struggle much with any of those, or did they just kind of come naturally? You always struggle with poetry. Yeah. Okay. That's one of the reasons why it took so long. <laughs> Do you have a very large vocabulary, or did you find yourself going to thesaurus very much to find the perfect word for? some point no uh i was one of the kids who read the dictionary uh so you can uh 
so you can get good word, the, the right word. So then what did you struggle with then as you wrote your, um, as the poet? Making, integrating the religious systems with the action, with the ethics. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's a section in the book that deals with, shall we say, the successor to Islam. Mm-hmm. And because of the poetics, there's a series of steps of conversations that had to be done in verse. Mm-hmm. That was work. Hmm. Okay. It does seem like since since you did this research, I, I get the impression, maybe it's incorrect, that a lot of religious texts sort of are poetic, in a sense. Or oh, they, I mean, the, the Quran is all poetry. Mm-hmm. And certainly the King James Version of the Bible is incredibly poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, the Book of Mormon is a takeoff on that, and it tries to be, but it's not nearly so good. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's, uh, it makes me wonder why, you know, is that sort of a, a what's the right word? You'll, you'll, you would know the right word, but uh, maybe a, a, a misappropriation of poetry, you know, to try to convince people to be faithful by using pretty language? Well, that, that's the cynical view of it. Mm-hmm. But you can take the other view of it, because a lot of religious people were very ethical. And poetry is the way of ex- trying to express the love of the divine mm-hmm. and the love of a righteous or a, an ethical life. Mm-hmm. You can look at it either way. And I think it's been used both ways. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that was a cynical question on my part, but, yeah. Well, I mean, anything can be misused. Yeah. And I think probably the Bible and the Koran have both been terribly abused Mm -hmm. by fanatics on all sides. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that was the intent of those who wrote it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's your your next writing project? You mentioned this other book you had just uh, submitted. Basically, it's a new fantasy series. Mm-hmm. The title of the overall series is The Grand Illusion. Mm-hmm. The first book is called Isolate, and uh, that one's in production. It'll be out a year from November, mm. roughly. Okay. And I'm working on the second book, which is called Counselor. Mm-hmm. And it's basically set in a world, a different world. It's set in a world which is roughly analogous to 1920s technology, but there is no possibility of electricity. Hmm. And it's it's what my editor calls a gaslight fantasy, because huh. without electricity, mm-hmm. there's gas lights. Right. And the fantastical element is that, in essence, about 5% of the population possesses empathetic talents. They can either be projective empaths or isolates. Mm-hmm. Or totally immune to such projection. Ah, I see. And it's a political novel set in an empire in that world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Where can people find you online? Do you have a website or social media? Uh, I don't do social media, but I do have a website. Mm-hmm. And that website is L E Modest Junior, all run together with no periods or anything. Dot com. And I'll just spell that uh, modest set for people. So it's L E M O D E S I T T. And is that J R? J R. Okay. Yeah. And did you say, I'm sorry, did you say dot, dot com? Dot com. Okay. 
All right. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or words? I've enjoyed the conversation. You've gone a few places that uh, most other interviewers haven't gone. Huh. That's, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I mean, I enjoyed, I asked questions that um, I think I'll get interesting answer, answers for, and I certainly did. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.